Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Dave Rabin. Dave is a neuroscientist and board-certified psychiatrist with a focus on integration therapy and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. He specializes in treatment-resistant mental illnesses, including depression, anxiety, PTSD, and insomnia. Obviously a useful fellow in these times. Dave and I touch on the many aspects of the current mental health epidemic. Specifically, we discuss the potential benefits and mechanisms of ketamine-assisted therapy. Uh, Historically, ketamine has been considered an anesthetic used to sedate both humans and famously horses, and it's been widely used for recreational purposes. But now, it's also the subject of an enormous amount of interest as a fast-acting treatment for depression and other serious mental health conditions. A little history. Ketamine was first approved as an anesthetic in 1970, but using it to address psychiatric conditions has been considered quote-unquote off-label. This means it's legal for a doctor to prescribe, but it's not approved by the FDA for that particular indication. However, this is now changing. In 2019, the FDA approved S-ketamine, a nasal spray that is marketed as Spravato for treatment-resistant depression and acute suicidal thinking. Ketamine administration, along with other protocols involving a combination of psychedelics and talk therapy, have gained tremendous momentum in recent years, particularly given new studies that have questioned the efficacy of popular antidepressants, such as SSRIs. Now, given the lack of statistically significant correlation between low serotonin levels and depression, Dr. Dave and I discuss some of the best clinical research on the use of psychedelic-assisted therapy. In our conversation, we discuss exposure therapy, neuroplasticity, and epigenetics, and the link between trauma and depression. And we take a deep dive into the history of the biochemical theory of depression and its focus on serotonin. If you want to learn more on this fascinating topic, consider taking Dr. Dave Rabin's new commune course on neuroplasticity titled Rewire Your Brain. To sign up for the first four days for free, just go to onecommune.com slash rewire. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Dr. Dave Rabin. Dave Rabin. Great to be with you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, this is only the second interview I've done in this new studio. Oh, it's so great. I didn't know you that. and Marianne Williamson. So you're oh you're in good company. Good, good company. Yeah. Very different topic though today. Um so we've got good news and, and bad news um here as it pertains to mental health. Um my dad and mom always started with the bad news, so mm, I'll, follow, I'll follow in their footsteps. So we <clears throat> we got an issue here. Um, there's 20 million some odd Americans suffering from depression. I think globally we're talking about a billion people with some form of mental disorder. So it's one out of every eight 
people. Um, and, uh, and it's not only the people themselves who are suffering from a mental disorder, but it's their families that have to provide the care. So really, when we're talking about mental illness, almost no one is unscathed at this juncture. True. Um, so that's a very, very significant um, social problem, not to mention all of the expense um, connected with it. So the good news... Um, is that this is likely the most exciting time in the history of the treatment of mental illness right now. Um, and, uh, and you're at the, the, the bleeding edge of it, um, uh, the tip of the spear, if you will. And so um, I'm really, really excited to be with uh, you here today to unpack some of the and new therapies or neurocatalytic processes as you lay out um, for neuroplasticity such that the brain can change and, and heal. Um, and we can spend some uh, time specifically focusing on, on ketamine and ketamine-assisted um, therapy since that is um, very much on the front page of virtually every newspaper and magazine at this juncture. And I know this is a, an area of, of extreme and profound focus for you. Um, but let's potentially set the, the chess pieces here uh, because this is such a complex uh, and complicated issue. And one of the reasons it is so complex is that there are so many diagnoses. Um, the taxonomy is so um, jumbled. And so many of these diagnoses are based around clusters of similar symptoms. And so I wonder if you could spend a little bit of time kind of untangling the most prevalent and prominent mental disorders and, and how they present. Sure. it's uh, a great place to start. I think the one of the biggest and most common challenges with mental illness itself is the diagnosis. Mm -hmm because the diagnosis in mental health is not associated in historically speaking with a take this antibiotic pill for seven days and then, you know, get some rest and drink some water and have some chicken soup and you'll feel better and then the infection will be gone and you're off on your way, right? It's very much a take this medicine for and go to therapy for the rest of your life once you have a diagnosis. And then this is, this is a, a big change for people because it's a huge admission of, of vulnerability, weakness, and, or at least our society looks at it as weakness. It's really just vulnerability, mm -hmm. right? It's that I'm having a hard time right now with X, Y, Z, and that feels like depression or it feels like sadness or it feels like I'm not sleeping enough and so I'm not functioning where I want to be, but that doesn't have to be a terminal diagnosis. And so the problem is that I mean, if you really want to get down to it, which I think is, you know, this is one of my favorite things to talk about is yeah. that it's our misuse of the words mm. that causes a lot of illness for people. I see a lot of patients and I can tell you that most of my patients, you could call what they have PTSD if you really tried hard to fit it into a box because we all have trauma. And so I think PTSD, as we'll talk about is really, and trauma itself is the root of almost all mental illness. But when I am actually treating people, I treat people who have what we call treatment resistant mental illness. So they've tried at least two or more gold standard treatments and not achieved 
sustained remission. So now they're on, they've at least tried two. And so they can come to me and they're like, well, these aren't working. What do you got for me? And the first thing we treat is illness anxiety disorder, which is the association that we've learned to build between our identity and our sense of self and the being told that we have a diagnosis of a mental illness. Yes. So there's a tremendous about of there's a tremendous amount of anxiety about the anxiety. And then we become anxious about the anxiety about the anxiousness. And like this is a not a very profitable course. Um when it creates this negative association in terms of the way that we look at ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody tells you, like you go to a doctor, you actually finally, you're feeling not so good for a while. You put yourself in the position of somebody who might be struggling with feeling, waking up and feeling sad every day for a period of months. And finally, you get up the energy to actually go to the doctor and to actually tell that doctor what you're struggling with. And you probably feel a little bit bad about it because you feel that you're alone in this and that other people aren't experiencing what you're experiencing, even though they probably are. And then the doctor says, well, you have a diagnosis of depression. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like a moral injury, right? You're being told there's something wrong with me, mm-hmm. especially based on the previous understanding of mental illness, which is now changing thanks to a lot of re- great research that but the previous understanding was there's an imbalance that you're born with chemical imbalance in your brain and you need medicine to fix that because you are imperfect the way you are, right? There's something wrong with you the way you are, that you need this medicine to get better. It doesn't mean the medicine can't help, but it means that we're telling people they need it, that they don't need it, right? They, what they need is they need support and they need love and they need care and that could involve medicine or it could involve just a lot of really good psychotherapy and, and connection, human connection, but doesn't require the medicine. And if we tell somebody that they have a diagnosis that requires medicine to get better, because that's what some of the other studies show, then we're actually telling people that they are disempowered to their own healing experience, right? We're saying that you no longer can rely on yourself and trusting yourself to get through this challenge. You have to take this stuff from the outside. Mm-hmm. And add it to what's coming on from inside because what's inside is not good enough to get through this. Like, what kind of message is that? You know. Yeah, so that ties very much into what has been our typical understanding of the origin of mental illness. So maybe let's check a few boxes there. So a lot of people would claim like, well, depression just runs in my family. It's genetic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, there's like APOE4 alleles that potentially point to a greater proclivity or for a risk factor for Alzheimer's or something like that. But by and large, can we blame genetics for the epidemic of mental illness? Short answer is no. Because, and, and every study to date, even the studies looking at things very severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression, anxiety, and other others have not seen any consistent statistically significant correlation between genetics, the D, the four-letter DNA code, mm-hmm. A, C's, T's, and G's. It's the same in every cell in our bodies. We have not seen correlations between that and mental illness that are significant. But what we do see is there's a relationship that's statistically significant between past trauma Mm-hmm. and these symptoms okay. and epigenetic code. So what's on the DNA that tells certain parts of the DNA, like cortisol receptors, to go turn up or turn down in somebody who has had trauma, 
that was significant enough, then that is actually changing the way the DNA is expressed. And so there is a genetic or there is a, a layer of the illness that is related to the DNA that gets passed on over time. But the difference between it saying it's genetic versus epigenetic is genetic means we can't change it. Right. And epigenetic means we have every ability to change it. Yeah. So it's just about figuring out how, not if. I think these honestly neuroplasticity and epigenetics and to some degree the microbiome has informed this new era of agency and sort of the end of genetic determinism. It's more or less like what Einstein and Bohr and Planck did to Newtonian physics mm-hmm. at the beginning of the 20th century. These studies at which you're, you know, at the center point of are pointing to a similar phenomena, which is that, you know, there is the world, the underlying reality is not fixed that we have a tremendous amount of agency to change things, that there is no foundational building block of depression. Right. So, and so when you talk about epigenetics, for example, so the turning on and off of genes and how they express and how they code for certain proteins, for example. So there could be like BDNF, which is kind of gets floating around quite a bit on the internet Mm -hmm. now, brain derived neurotrophic factor. Mm -hmm. So that is, um, your genetics, your underlying nucleotide sequences could code for that the creation of that particular protein, but whether or not that gene expression is turned on or off might be influenced by external or environmental factors like trauma. Is exactly. that a fair understanding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because trauma because you know trauma encodes for a threat response or a survival response in our bodies that is diverting resources to systems that are required to fight flight or freeze to get out of survival threat and into safety. So for example, BDNF is a learning neurochemical. That's Mm -hmm. very important for learning new things, learning, strengthening, learning of old things. It's very, very much secreted actively in our amygdala, the fear center of our brains when we're learning to associate fear or safety with different experiences. So if you can imagine, and again, this is just more of a hypothetical, but just to help people understand what the role of epigenetics is that, you know, and Rachel Yehuda discovered this with respect to the cortisol receptor um, from her work at Yale and, and Sinai, studying Holocaust survivors and really understanding that people who, which was something we've observed for probably over a hundred years now, which is the idea that people who have had PTSD or severe trauma in their lives will pass on an increased predisposition to PTSD and other mental health disorders to their offspring and their offspring's offspring Hmm. and even their offspring's offspring's offspring for potentially many generations. So Rachel found this epigenetic linkage by studying the cortisol receptor and cortisol system in Holocaust survivors and showing that there was indeed changes in epigenetic markings on the DNA for these cortisol systems that were passing down across time. And then now this has been replicated in mice and rodents that shows without a doubt, if you traumatize a rodent, that for at least four generations, we pass down changes to things like cortisol receptors, BDNF potentially, and where these molecules are expressed and how much. And so learning itself as one example, learning is really important to human survival, but it's not that important to learn new things when you're running from a lion yeah. or whether, or if your body perceives that we're running from danger. 
learning is more about let's get out of danger and let's learn what we can do better to avoid danger when we're out of danger, right? And so we might be diverting and having learned over potentially hundreds or thousands of years, depending on our genetic, our, our DNA line and our ancestry, we may, and how much trauma they faced, we may actually have learned to decrease the secretion or the uh, effectiveness of something like a learning molecule like BDNF because we spent so much time worried and running from threat, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think that, I haven't seen a linkage to BDNF in this way, but the point is that everything we experience is changing our epigenetic code in some ways. It's just about right now, how much of it can we actually measure? Maybe you can help me understand the mechanism by which uh, or how which acquired traits are um, heritable transgenerationally. So, um, like I, I understand that that genes um, can be methylated, for example. So there's like a little kind of hydrogen slash carbon lollipop that can yep. attach itself to uh, a gene and influence the gene expression, for example. And then there's also histones and the way that they interact with proteins and, and whatnot or, or genes um, that can impact how they're coding for certain proteins. Yeah. So I, I can understand how that happens, but then how is that actually passed down? Like I've read some things about like that there's like actual micro mRNA in sperm that could actually sit kind of next to the genetic code, mm-hmm. which is pretty wild. Um, but what is your understanding of the mechanism by which uh, epigenetics functions transgenerationally? I think the, we don't understand all of it, by the way. Yeah. So it's not, and it's an extraordinarily complicated process, fantastically complex. It's really, it's really incredible. But yeah. what I can tell you is that the, it seems like if you, if you think about epigenetic regulation, so the the layer on top of the DNA that tells the same DNA that's in every cell that when it's skin, it's supposed to be skin and make skin proteins and not stomach proteins. And when it's in the stomach, it's supposed to be stomach and not skin. Differentiation. Right. And, And that differentiation could be because we have the same map of our entire cells in every cell except sperm and egg that we would have on each of those cells the code on top of the code that tells that cell to be one cell or another to function this way or that way, right? So if you think about methylation being what tells skin to go turn, what tells skin to turn up or down, that you add a methyl group to a skin protein in the stomach, which tells it to turn down, you take that away in the skin, so that skin turns up in the skin, Right. then that same thing happens with stress. So if you have a, an intense stress, then you'd have a burst in cortisol, then you have another intent that's supposed to happen one time, then you go cortisol goes back to normal, everything goes back to normal, and everybody's good. And then we're in safety again. Now you apply that chronically. So every day, there's a huge cortisol burst, cortisol burst, cortisol burst, sometimes that might last for many, many, many hours. Mm. And then what happens to the receptor decides to pull in, right, because it's overstimulated. Right. And pretty much all of our receptors on in the body, when they're overstimulated, they just withdraw or they desensitize themselves because they're having too much stimulation, too much cortisol around. And so then that's going to tell, send a signal into the cell that says, hey, 
we don't need as much cortisol receptor because we keep getting overstimulated. So make less, right? So then that's sending a signal that says put more methyl groups on the cortisol receptor gene at these spots. Hmm. So then those methyl groups get literally added to those carbon hydrogen lollipops you, you so hmm. aptly described. They get added to these parts of the of the code for that cortisol receptor gene that says make less of this. Hmm. And if you add, if you make less of this, then you'll get less cortisol receptor. And then that cell become, you know, when that cell is being made into a sperm and egg, it sperm, let's go with sperm, for instance, the cortisol receptor gene that has the methyl groups on it from this chronic mm. stress exposure divides. And then, you know, half of in, in meiosis, half of the DNA goes into one sperm versus another. And then there's a 50 50 chance that we're going to pass that on to our offspring, yeah. right? Because each cell has a 50 50 split of our DNA, yeah. each sperm. Each sperm. So that, that sperm also still has the methyl groups on it. The methyl groups don't leave, mm. from what we can tell. And there's other stuff that's happening other than just methyl groups. But just as one example of a of a marker, an epigenetic marker, those stay on the DNA, and then they get also passed on to the offspring. Yeah. So let's ground this in in something real life, for example. So let's just say that there is a trauma inducing event in someone's life. So that might be a horrible act of abuse or neglect, you know, capital T kind of trauma mm -hmm. um, that then gets interpreted by the body in a particular way, stimulates the overproduction of cortisol, for example, every time that memory is resurfaced and mm -hmm. even remotely labile. Um, Can I add something to yeah. that? And every time they had that experience as a child, it was always around the smell of buttered popcorn. So now there's an association between the smell of buttered popcorn and being abused and being worthless and not worthy of love, right? So now you take that into the future and every single time that person smells buttered popcorn, it reminds them that they are of their trauma, which they can then flash back to. And it reminds them of the sentiment around the trauma, which is you're not worthy of love right. because you deserve to be abused yeah. to get value, to be valued right? And then it creates this loop. So, so what that is causing the change to the cortisol receptor. Right. So then what's really amazing about what we now know, which is where the safety tools come in is now that you've had a fear response, abuse, worth, worth feelings of worthlessness, disconnection, right? Lack of love and affection associated with the smell of buttered popcorn and childhood and everything else that was that age that you were at and, and maybe parenting and anything else that was happening at that time. And now we can go in and say, okay, well, let's expose you to the smell of buttered popcorn in safe environments. Mm, right. Right. So let's put you around lots of people who love you, who care about you, who you have absolutely no doubt about their, about the fact that you can trust them. Maybe it's your therapist, maybe it's family, friends, what have you. And let's put you in that environment where you don't question your safety at all. And let's expose you to the smell of buttered popcorn. And let's expose you to the pictures of you as a child during that age. Let's talk about what's happening in your life during that time as a child. And then if you even, and you can do that without any drugs. Right. To get somebody to start to recondition their, their fear response, which then we've shown in mice is actually extinguishing it. So future offsprings of mice, if you don't do anything to them to extinguish the fear response, they, the, the offspring still fear the smell of buttered popcorn. Mm -hmm. And 
So in that process of exposure therapy in combination with talk therapy or psychotherapy, in some ways you are remarking the neural connection around that particular trauma or changing the nature of that connection um, where it might have been at one point kind of marked with a spike of epinephrine and kind right. of solidified into this, into this deep pathway. Um, uh, you are essentially re-changing one or re, uh, you're changing one's perspective or perception of that particular trauma or memory. Right. Or association, I suppose. Yeah. Which as above, so below, as you change your perception and your connection to it and your feelings of safety versus fear around that experience then you, and the surrounding experiences, you also change your neural networks that are connected around those experiences. Right. So the part of your brain that was talking about buttered popcorn now might actually talk about affection and feeling good rather than feeling threatened because right. you've changed the association, right? And then that goes all the way back down to the, epigenetics of the way the neurons are making proteins that talk to each other, how the proteins are made that tell the neurons to grow towards a sense of positivity and joy and connection rather than disconnection and abuse and fear and shame, right? And so it can actually shift the neural networks and how they're formed and then all the way down to the epigenetic level to cortisol and all these other things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it takes time. Yeah. yeah, It takes time. Like we can't just expect that we're, you know, you're going to have one positive, meaningful, positive experience. And then it's going to awaken you to this idea that you can do this. And all of a sudden, you know, you just change it in one day. We, you know, we took years, sometimes decades to get to where we are right yeah. now in this moment. So it just takes, yeah. once you recognize it, you can do, do it the work very quickly, but it does take time and patience with the process to retrain ourselves the way we want to. Yeah. And uh, I think we might've talked about this in our prior conversation, but I know that there's been some clinical research around exposure sh exposure therapy in combination with like beta blockers for example so you know you can introduce uh like a spider with someone with massive arachnophobia mm -hmm. um but if you can expose them to that fear while they're on a beta blocker you can actually reshape the neural connection around that particular phobia to have some fairly positive long lasting results. Yeah, so, absolutely. It's interesting. So, okay. So in the same with psychedelic molecules well, yeah. in a slightly different way and the same with things like Apollo. Totally. Right? Cause you're, it's, yeah. it's all about how do you make the body feel safe or remind the person? It's a, it's a remember, it's a reminder. Yeah. How do you remind yourself that you're safe? Because your heart's not going through the roof and your blood pressure is not going through the roof and you're not sweating out your palms, right? There's so many different ways to do it. Right. around the thing that you used to think was threatening. Right. Well, it's sort of like knowing that that snake that's coming, that's, you know, serpentining his way across the floor here is actually not poisonous. Right. Versus a rattlesnake or something like right. that. And, and it might actually even be a speaker wire. Yeah, might, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> it is. Sorry. Um, and um, so, so we've addressed the genetic component of it. So that there's much more prevalence um, towards mental disorders around epigenetics and epigenetic uh, inheritance of, of methylated genes, per se, um, versus genetic. So, and then we, at the same time, talked about some of the sort of the biopsychosocial um, 
uh, inputs that can shape the epigenetic um, on and off switch, if you will. Let's talk about sort of the biochemical theory of the origin of mental illness. And this is a very hot topic right now because it speaks specifically to our obsession with serotonin. Um, and so can you unpack a little bit of our history uh, around linking uh, mental disorders with biochemical imbalance? Sure. I think there's a lot we could talk about here. Yeah. I, I think mm -hmm. the, maybe I can, for, so for the longest time, we didn't know anything about the biochemical connections to mental illness. And until we, you know, the discovery of LSD and a number of other interesting neuroactive molecules that targeted the serotonin receptor system, um, you know, LSD was discovered, I think, in the late 30s, early 40s, and then um, by Albert Hoffman, mm -hmm. and then distributed around the world, not knowing what it did. And ultimately, that between the study of that and the gut-brain axis and starting to understand the, what was going on in the gut, we then were able to realize there's a whole lot of serotonin receptors down here, and there's a whole lot of serotonin. Let's see what that does. And then we realized that it was an important emotional molecule. And then eventually that led to the development of things like monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which are the very first real antidepressants, and then tricyclic antidepressants, and then SSRIs, which came around later, like Zoloft and Prozac. Right. And so we sort of backed our way in to this notion that lower concentrations of serotonin are associated with depression and bipolar disorder, mental disorders. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think it's a combination of things because we, in animal models, it was pretty apparent in a lot of situations, not all, but, you know, that that animals that had serotonin deficiency appeared de depressed, right? They appeared mm -hmm. like there was some kind of depressed, what we call like a phenotype, which is an expression of what's going on underneath. Um, and again, these are animal models, so they're not perfect, but by any means, but they were, you know, a hint in that direction. And then there was this drive that actually happened where I was trained. Um, that was a coordinated effort between Tom Detry from Yale's very famous psychiatrist and, uh, David Kupfer and a number of other people who ran psychiatry at Western psychiatric Institute and clinic, um, in Pittsburgh. And these two were, and, and a number of the other, uh, psychiatrists and neuroscience folks at that time, we're trying to figure out how do we make psychiatry more of a medical specialty rather than this kind of, you know, something that's like drenched in theory, right? Where right. everything's like psychoanalysis and coming in four to three to five days a week and sitting on a couch, talk to somebody, and there's not even a mention of a molecule and there's no predictive element of understanding how and when somebody's going to yeah, get better or worse. Their symptoms are all self-reported and there's very little scan technology in right. the early days, right? So you can really look at fMRI images or SPECT or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. And everything, yeah, so, so all the diagnosis, everything was made through conversation. Yeah. And it was extremely subjective. But the subjective abilities of therapists and psychiatrists was excellent, right? right. We, had, we were highly trained folk. We were really, <laughs> really good at being able to deliver psychotherapeutic yeah, interventions. Yeah. And we also all had to go through our own psychotherapy during training. So many, many people were either doing individual one-on-one -on -one regular psychodynamic Freudian or actually psychoanalytic three to five days a week while in 
training back then. It was required. And then Thomas Detry came around. And of course, the results of that were fine, but they were missing a, lar a large segment of the population, obviously, because anybody who's ever worked with anybody who's mentally ill knows that therapy alone is really hard when somebody's very sick right. and can't really engage. And so medicine, there is a place for medicine. And so, you know, Tom Detry came around during this time around the the medicalization of psychiatry in the 80s, 90s uh, in particular, and, and, you know, came to Western Psych from Yale and basically said, we're going to turn the psychoanalytic institution into the, into a Western, what we consider to be a, an objective Western medical practice. Right. And then the DSM came, the Diagnostics uh, Manual of Mental Health Illness came out of that from Western Psych. Right. The very first one, it was in like the late 70s or something like that. And that changed everything. Going back to the beginning of our conversation, the release of that document that said a huge book, right? This is if you check off these, these boxes mm -hmm. for depression, yeah. you should be prescribed an SSRI. You should be prescribed a tricyclic or MAOI inhibitor. Right. And it tried to formularize it all hmm. to a bunch of check boxes, checking off diagnostic diagnostics, and then giving a diagnosis that then you were billing for, and then prescribing a specific medical routine. Right. And, and that created a lot of problems because it not only created this idea around the diagnosis that especially that, you know, has happened now, which is I have to give a diagnosis to you to get paid by insurance for giving you care, even if you're healthy, right. I still have to give you something, which is not really the point, right? Then um, it changes the, the relationship because the diagnosis is for me to communicate to my other doctor colleagues about the patterns going on in you. It's not really for you as the patient, right? You know, it's for you it's for the billing. Yeah. Right. It's for billing and it's for communicating patterns of illness. If I give that to you and you misunderstand the use of that word depression or major depression, then you might think I am sick forever. And that's exactly what we don't want you to think, but that's what ultimately has happened. Right. Yeah. I mean, the intention could have been noble to right. medicalize this field and to better understand the biochemistry behind this phenomenon and how to address it through pharmacology. There's nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. But just, un I, unfortunately, just the way that we mechanize things in <laughs> the West in particular, um, that it, it has had consequences um, that aren't necessarily ideal, like the treatments don't always work and there's really no bio-individuality approach to the treatment so or the, right. the prescription. So well, it was radically reductionist, right? It yeah. was it was to the to the point of saying, well, it's all about serotonin, and it's all about the imbalance of this molecule, and it's all about these receptors not functioning well. And so let's just focus on that. Right. That, of course, is not the full story because the brain is so vastly complex. For you know people that you know haven't been immersed in serotonin or kind of neurotransmitters. So serotonin is a, known as a neurotransmitter, as, a, as an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So essentially something that will inhibit activity between neurons, if I'm getting that right. Yeah, it depends on the receptors yeah, being used, but yeah. And it's um, synthesized from uh, an essential amino acid known as tryptophan, so some people supplement with 5-HTP. Um, 
if they're not getting enough tryptophan and in combination with B6, your body is synthesizing serotonin, this chemical messenger internally, often in the gut, mm-hmm. 90% of it, as you say, is, can be found in the gut. It can actually be a um, postbiotic or a metabolite of particular bacteria, streptococcus and enterococcus in, in, in your gut. So um, anyways, it's a, it's a fascinating and very important neurotransmitter, but we've potentially coronated it um, uh, inappropriately. So there was obviously, or for those of us who have been following this, there's a, there was a big paper that came out in the New York Times in July, basically more or less debunking the theory of serotonin. And a lot of people in the neuroscience community sort of already knew this um, to some degree. We suspected. Yeah, there was some clinical trials, I think, at some point where they basically removed tryptophan from people's diets. And so basically these people could have no serotonin uh, created or produced endogenously, and they didn't show any greater prevalence Mm. for being depressed. So anyways, but I think what this showed is that it's not about serotonin on the synapse necessarily, but there might be some other mechanism by which serotonin is effective because, and let me ask you this question because I'm not sure if it's true, but from what I understand, there is a greater rate of self-reported well-being or happiness um, associated with higher concentrations of, of serum serotonin. So there and is- And all monoamines. Like yes. dopamine and right. and the whole shebang, right? So, so do you have any spidey sense there in terms of what's the other mechanism by which serotonin might be playing a role here? So so I think that I love this conversation and where this is going. So so I think that serotonin is so interesting because it's it's really just vastly misunderstood. It's not it's not that it doesn't have an important role. I think, you know, as we'll get to, I think the role of serotonin in mental health and consciousness is absolutely essential, especially at one receptor site that we'll talk about because serotonin has maybe dozens of receptors, different kinds of receptors, but there's one in particular called 5HT2A. That has also been implicated as one of the primary serotonin receptor sites that psychedelic medicines like MDMA, DMT, uh, LSD, psilocybin all bind to mescaline. Right. So that has been found to be, it's been found to be critical, that receptor activation for all of these psychedelics to work, particularly LSD and psilocybin, which is really interesting. So I think the issue with serotonin is that what we're seeing from this huge study that came out in July Uh, which I think was a University College of London study that's called an umbrella study. So it's like a meta-analysis of meta-analyses, which is the biggest kind of study you can do. So it was in over 100,000 people worldwide, I think. And it showed effectively just looking across all the results of all the work on serotonin, SSRIs, and depression that have been done, uh, what if the questions predominantly were like, what is having the biggest impact on depression or what features or attributes of an individual would make them most likely to suffer from depression. And it doesn't seem to be genetic from prior studies, and it doesn't seem to be a serotonin imbalance because that was never actually proven in large scale. Because if you're sad for a long enough time, you will induce a serotonin imbalance. So is it the imbalance that comes first, which is the question we always ask, right? It's chicken or egg. Is it the imbalance that comes first? Or is it you had a really, really, you know, big set of really hard times and now you have lower serotonin in your body because you're, you've been feeling down for a while legitimately. Like yeah. why invalidate that negative experience? So 
what this paper showed ultimately was that there is no known statistically significant correlation between low having low serotonin levels for any reason and depression. What we do see, however, is that there is a very statistically significant correlation between trauma and depression. Mm-hmm. And there's a very statistically significant correlation between doing exercise and feeling better from depression, which mm-hmm. is a naturally serotonergic activity and mm-hmm. a dopamine releasing activity and an endorphin releasing activity, right? So that is encouraging to the monoamine model that says if you increase the amount of natural, um, naturally increase the amount of molecules in the serotonin, dopamine, et cetera, group using things like movement, which gets anxiety out of the body and then also naturally rewards the body, the people will feel better. And that trauma is likely to be at the source of, of all of what makes people end up either receiving a downstream diagnosis of depression or PTSD or ADHD. The symptoms are not the illness. The symptoms are the pattern of how the actual illness, which is the unresolved trauma is manifesting in the individual. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I interviewed an interesting doctor, a guy named Chris Palmer. I was mentioning him to you before um, mm-hmm. we started recording. And he has a very interesting theory about the nature of mental illness. And his goal was really to create a unified theory kind of upstream from all of the different diagnoses. And where he landed was that essentially mental disorders are, are metabolic disorders of the brain. And, uh, you know, it's very thought provoking, but you know, he has a number of different hypotheses around serotonin itself is that serotonin also seems to be involved with the mitochondria in terms of the upregulating of the production of ATP, so of energy. So there may be some sort of correlation there because generally, you know, when, they're, when, you're, when you're low energy, uh, that is often a, um, a trait or a symptom of many of these diseases that, that have been um, given these various classifications or whatever. And then there also does seem to be a relationship between serotonin um, and mitochondrial biogenesis. So the creation of new mitochondria, it, especially in neurons that are highly uh, require a tremendous amount of energy and a mm-hmm. tremendous amount of energy production. Anyways, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting hypothesis. Um, but I think the moral uh, of this story is that, you know, we don't necessarily know the answer that it is, you know, the brain is the most complex uh, organ in the world, in the universe that we know of mm-hmm. at this, uh, anyways. Um, and it's, and it's multilinear uh, in terms of all the mechanisms that are happening um, at any one time. So how effective then have Paxil, Zoloft, Prozac, SSRIs been in treatment? I mean, it depends on the disorder. If we're talking about depression, yeah. it's probably about 50% of people get... Some temporary relief. Some basically. relief, yeah, and, and how long that lasts varies quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in PTSD, it's something like only 30% that get that actually respond to the medicines. So there's over 70% of people that don't. And then in anxiety disorders like OCD and other things, there's usually a slightly higher response rate. Okay. Um, so anxiety it, disorders, are they mostly given benzodiazepines or is it... Or no, mostly SSRIs. Mostly now. SSRIs. Yeah. yeah. 
But I think again, you know, if you think about what an SSRI is doing, it is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Right. So it's if you if you imagine the the synapse of your brain that is communicating one message to another neuron and sending the message across that your one cell is releasing a, bur a burst of serotonin and then it's and then the serotonin fills the synapse just like we were talking about with cortisol earlier right right and then this receptors get overstimulated yeah on a chronic long-term basis we see that the receptors start to pull back uh -huh. right people start to experience side effects that are related to desensitization hmm. numbing yeah decreased ability of sexual arousal orgasm yeah right lack of passion about hobbies or apathy pleasure or right anything. yeah and the reason for that this is what this is why this is so interesting to me is because there's so much we can learn from the the, the use of these medicines in the real world in patients mm -hmm. so when you administer based on the side effect profile and the positive effects we know that ssris like paxil and zoloft work for the people they work for because they induce a sort of emotional numbing by sh narrowing the emotional window so it's not to say you can't experience sad feelings but you're gonna your your window of what how sad you're gonna get is is blunted and your window also of how positive and happy things are gonna get is also blunted mm. because serotonin is not a positive or a negative only emotional regulator it regulates emotion in general right it, it helps support the whole range of emotion the range of emotion is very much related to how meaningful things are to us, mm -hmm. right? The more meaningful something is, the more we can relate to it, the more the good, the better it makes us feel. Then maybe there's more going on there, right? But maybe that is not about, you know, to offer a complementary theory. Maybe it's not about flooding the receptor because flooding the receptor creates numbing and apathy and decreased pleasure and sadness. So what if it's mm -hmm. really about burst activation? Right? Yeah. Because what people are reporting from taking SSRIs as a common side effect for an extended period of time is feeling apathy. What is apathy? It's lack of meaning, right? It's lack of purpose. It's lack of connection and emotional blunting. What do psychedelics do? The opposite, the opposite. Yeah. right? So you administer LSD or psilocybin and you're getting activation at the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor, the same one we're talking about, that, that are flooded by, S, by SSRIs. Mm -hmm. And then you get an activation of that receptor that's a huge burst, which is caused by a giant release of serotonin for a very short window of time, like four to eight hours. And the receptor is activated additionally by some of the psychedelic molecules to increase its ability to clamp onto serotonin, which is called an allosteric binding pathway. It's like psilocybin and LSD can bind the receptor main part sometimes but they can also bind the side and then it increases the tightness of binding hmm. of the of serotonin so then you get this huge burst activation which happens only for four to 12 hours or something like that and that creates this radical shift in meaning where something hmm. as mundane as oh that song that i never used to like now i have complete new respect for it i never <laughs> i never realized how much i like this song right all of a sudden that song right. means something to me because I've shifted my perspective. And Franz Vollenweider, one of my favorite psychedelic scientists based in Switzerland, who's doing some of the best research on LSD and psilocybin uh, and the receptor pathway, showed this in fact in the last five years that if you administer catanserin, which is a 5-HT2A serotonin receptor blocker, mm -hmm. orally, orally active, 
in humans. You just give them this pill or a sugar pill, double-blind randomized placebo-controlled study, give people catanserin to block the 5-HT2A receptor or sugar, mm-hmm. sugar pill, nobody knows what they're taking, and then you also give them psilocybin or LSD, only the people who took the placebo sugar pill actually had a change in meaning right. from the psychedelic. Got it. Only those people had burst activation wow. at the 5-HT2A receptor. So when you think about what we're doing to people with SSRIs and the side effect profile, loss of meaning, and you think about what psychedelics do and how they work, which we also just figured out at this particular receptor site, which is create burst activation, which then creates this ubiquity of meaning almost, right? Then maybe it's the burst of the serotonin that matters. Maybe it's not just having more or less. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. It's 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 receptor occupation over time hmm. so and, and density yeah. of of the molecule, molecular release that matters with some forms of psychedelic therapy are, are we essentially opening up new areas of the brain to talk with other different and divergent areas of the brain that they wouldn't otherwise be talking to, hence sort of creating, uh, you know, new synapses, but also synaptic density and synaptic efficiency, et cetera. Um, is that a fair, yeah. uh, is that a fair yeah, I would outline? Say, I'd say that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason why that happens is another thing that's really interesting, but that, you know, maybe we'll have time to dive into a little bit, but I think it's really that, yes, people are, our brains are intense automation machines. They're the most advanced automation machines have ever existed. They suck in information. They experience what's associated with that information, thoughts and feelings, and then they loop it positively in a feedback loop to either avoid or attract to a particular situation. And every time we repeat that, those neural networks get stronger automatically. And, and is that what the default mode network is? Basically, is our the the patterns in which are, we fall into that are the most ingrained at so, rest. At rest, and so yeah. they become essentially bottom up behaviors. At that point, they are subconscious behaviors. Yeah, I don't know or, if I would refer to them as bottom but, up from this in this capacity, yeah. but they're definitely entrained. entrained they're like yeah. they're so highly entrained that we have forgotten that they're even there. Right. Right. Like the way we think about ourselves or as a physical sensation it's like the way we don't feel our clothes on our skin because we've worn clothes for so long that now we notice way more when we're naked we're cold than we do when we are clothes where we're comfortable right or when something doesn't fit quite exactly right, you've been eating too many right. croissant in paris <laughs> too much biographical information there um so so let's talk about different kinds of ways that we can disrupt that default mode network uh sort of agents of kind of neurocatalytic processes basically um so maybe describe what a neurocatalytic agent is, and we'll, we'll start from there. So a neurocatalytic agent is something that I would describe as something that accelerates neural activity. So not just neural activity as in just one neuron talking to another, but in this case, I guess what I'm referring to is neural activity around learning and neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So neuroplasticity is, is really defined as the, or understood as the term that, 
relates to how the brain learns, which is in three primary ways. It's making new neurons, neurogenesis, repairing old neurons, neuroregeneration. And then the most common way that happens on a basically daily basis for us is, is synaptogenesis. Right. So building new connections between existing neurons, making new wiring between things that are already there. Right. And neuroplasticity is highly concomitant with learning, but it also seems to be absolutely central towards around addressing mental illness. Well, right, because we're talking about unlearning old behaviors that don't serve us and relearning new behaviors that do, including the way we think about ourselves. So if we think about if you just, you know, many of us don't even realize that we have a certain behavior pattern we've established that is the way that I describe myself. Mm-hmm. And when somebody would ask you, like, how would you describe yourself? You might say, like, well, I'm a total piece of shit, you know, and how are you going to how is that possibly going to make you feel good about yourself or confident or whatever, if that's yeah. how you actually think about yourself inside versus thinking about yourself as a joyful person seeking more joy in the world? Right. Well, right? it's tricky because we are pre-programmed by our our senses, the instruments that we have at our disposal, um, to feel a a sense of separateness because for reasons of, you know, that relate to sort of a biological imperative, we need to perceive threat. So all of our senses are geared towards perception in the external world. So we begin to label everything in kind of the foreground of our visual field, for example, you know, well, there's a camera that feels safe enough, but like there's something that, that might not feel safe and there's a plant and there's Wellington and like there's a light and, you know, as one develops their, their visual capabilities early in life, you begin to label every single thing outside of you. Right. And as you know, that seems fine and dandy kind of when you're three or four years old, that's absolutely you know, that's part of your, for your self-preservation. And, and, but as you, you know, become a teenager or an adolescent, you start to label things around you like, well, there's someone that has more money than I do, or there's someone that has greater social status or is more beautiful given, you know, the aesthetic uh, mores of society or whatever. And inherent to that labeling of everything in your external world is a self labeling Mm -hmm. and that self-labeling is what informs the ego the symbol that we give ourselves and then we confuse who we are with the symbol that we give ourselves Mm -hmm. so i'm dave rabin neuroscientist and i'm married and i've got a snappy blazer on you become those things you know instead of whatever you might want to say you know conscious the consciousness upon which all that phenomenon is etched or we can kind of you know get into all of that kind of stuff but that it's the hyper association with one's ego, with the roles that one plays in society that feeds this sense of perceived efficiency. Right. And so that we're always seeking out external agents to assuage that feeling of perceived efficiency or our discontents, et cetera. And so, and that can lead to all sorts of, um, you know, detrimental behaviors, you know, addictions of all sorts, et cetera. So this is kind of what we're sort of up against mm-hmm. given, you know, our God-given innate sensory instruments and, and science's genius to enhance them with telescopes and hearing aids and things like that. But yeah. still, 
So in a way, it's almost like we have to transcend part of our um, our senses, and that is hard within the culture, the specific culture that we live in, which constantly tells us that you are an individual, that you are separate from other people, that you're separate from nature, that pits you in competition and in comparison with everything in your external consciousness. Yeah. So... You know, it's it's and that's a, the default mode, and that's the default mode. And this wasn't always true. We often confuse culture and nature. So we say, oh well, it's human nature to be selfish or to be self-absorbed or to want to accumulate goods and stuff and services and what have you. But but that to is own a, things to own things. But that is a confusion between culture and nature because that was not our nature for the overwhelming majority of the history of the human species. You know, we lived in geodomes with 50 other people and raised our children communally and went in and hunted for food together for the group. And shared everything. And shared everything, yeah. And so um, when you have pre-programmed senses that are already geared to make you feel separate for a biological imperative. And then you have a culture lopping on a, uh, a modus operandi geared towards the individual incessantly, nonstop, at every turn. What are you going to end up with? I mean, you know, our friend Gabor Mate uses the Petri dish as a wonderful mm-hmm. example. It's like, you know, you try to grow, grow a pluripotent stem cell inside a Petri dish that has ammonia and alcohol in it, it's not going to do well. And you call that biological medium a culture. So what is the biological medium that you and I and my children are growing up in? Well, it's a particular kind of culture. When that culture is toxic and caustic, the only expected result is trauma-inducing events that lead to all these forms of mental disorders. And so it's like, it's not, shouldn't be like a huge surprise what's happening. Fortunately, the good news, again, the gospel, um, is that there are all of these emerging protocols um, to address some of these core issues. So let's let's get into some of them um, sort of the non-psychedelic ones first and then, you know, potentially um, crawl our way into, uh, into some ketamine therapy and maybe we can talk about some of the other ones. So when you talk about protocols for, um, for uh, neurocatalytic, as neurocatalytic agents, what are some of those protocols that we can leverage? So there are four major things that we can do but they all come, before I even get into that in any depth, yeah. it really comes back to one thing, which is safety, mm. right? Yeah. So if we think about the body and the way the body was designed, not even in just us humans, but going back to the ancient mammals of 50 million years ago, and you know, even ancient reptiles were split into two fundamental nervous systems. One is the sympathetic fight-or-flight nervous system, and the other one is the parasympathetic rest-and-digest recovery safety nervous system. The parasympathetic system is responsible for everything we do during recovery, reproduction, immunity, slowing metabolism, making sure that we can sleep and rest and actually recover our energy 
um, and empathy, every creativity, everything we do when we are safe and we can do when we're safe, we're not running from a lion, right? When we're running from a lion, we want all of that resources, all the resources to go to skeletal muscle, motor cortex, amygdala, motor, uh, you know, heart, heart, heart lungs, right. To get us out of that threatening situation. So all of that is hardwired in us. So it's critical for us to understand what's hardwired because there's, I don't know if anybody here remembers the matrix, but you know, one of my favorite lines that Morpheus says to Neo when he first gets him into the matrix is, or unplugged or what have you is there are some rules that can be bent and there are others that can be broken. And when it comes to the autonomic nervous system, those rules do not break. So if you know that what's what you're walking into with what's hardwired in the body and what the body is trained over millions of years to do in response to different things, yeah. all of a sudden it provides a heck of a lot of clarity as to what we can absolutely change, right? Yeah. And what we can't. Yeah. No, I mean, you could look at mental illness or chronic disease in general as adaptive mechanisms that have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years being hijacked by culture. Right. Because, you know, we were meant to store fat. We were meant to, um, we were meant to release melatonin at a certain hour of the evening to get proper sleep. There was all of these adaptive mechanisms that we developed over millennia. And now, you know, we're in culture gives us endless access to any kind of food in and out of season in the palm of our hand. Let's get it here in five minutes. Um, there's no scarcity. There's only growth right. pathways being stimulated, et cetera. Um, and anything it, less than that, you should be worried. Yeah. You should be afraid. <laughs> right. Or God exposure to, to blue light through on-demand entertainment right. all the time or whatever. There's all of these ways that we've essentially hijacked adaptive mechanisms and turned them into, honestly, maladaptive mechanisms. So, you know, in a way, it's actually, you know, it's a bit of an intellectual exercise, but you can kind of go back and be like, okay, well, what is nature's foundational intelligence telling me, you know, me the product of, of hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. What is that telling me about the adaptive mechanisms in my body? Right. And, and then how do I, how do I leverage those for a greater flourishing and eudaimonia and et cetera, experience of joy? Um, it's telling us that we want to feel safe and that we need to feel safe right. in our own skin. And so, the amygdala is a contrast detection mechanism, you know, machine. So it's not necessarily detecting fear. We call it the fear center, but it detects fear as newness, fear as unfamiliarity, fear as different than me. Uh-huh. And the more stressed we are, the more likely we are to perceive difference as threat. Hmm. So can we only really instantiate neuroplasticity in, in the parasympathetic state? Is it kind of, or do we need to find kind of enough balance between hormones and neurotransmitters that you're alert enough, like you have enough epinephrine or adrenaline, you know, to be able to focus, but then you also have enough, you know, acetylcholine and GABA in terms of being able to actually be calm enough to process thoughts or to consolidate learning or memory. What's going on there between the balance of all these neurochemicals? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think the short answer is neuroplasticity and learning never stop, right? They never right. stop. If you're in, whether you're sleeping or your, your brain, if you're, if we're asleep, our brain is doing, you know, memory reconsolidation and neuroplasticity through, uh, you know, rearranging of memories and moving memories from short term to long term. When we're awake and we're in a stress state, our bodies are learning around fear. We're learning to associate fear and threat with things that we're experiencing in those moments so that we don't accident like the buttered popcorn analogy, right? Where we don't actually accidentally think the buttered popcorn smell is safe for us because if we did, we might put ourselves in danger, right? Mm -hmm. Even though that's a false association, we were trained to believe it's true and useful and therefore we use it and we continue it until it's untrained. Similarly, we experience this with parasympathetic side, right? And I would argue that what the neuroscience is showing is that for us to allocate resources to our optimization of neuroplasticity and learning, we have to optimize functioning of the parasympathetic nervous system because that's when, even though we can learn when we're under threat and we can learn when we're asleep, when we are actively in an awakeful parasympathetic vagal state, we have most of our resources available to us to be present in the moment and to take in and, and, and to optimize listening, right? What is mm. learning? Learning is listening. And undivided listening is really the goal. Although many of us were never trained to do that properly, being able to tune our brains from doing stuff to just taking in information right. is where is requires a dominantly parasympathetic safety-based state of being. Interesting. So hyper-excitatory states like um, aren't ideal for learning what do you mean by hyper excitatory well um i guess from a biochemical perspective it might be like burst endless burst of glutamate um or uh essentially when we're in, in when neurons are excited it is is that informing our ability to be focused and listen for sure it's just which neurons are being excited. Okay. Right. Yeah, so it's enough. not, it's, yeah. it's not black and white. Yeah. This is the common misconception of what's happening in the brain is that it's not black and white at all. It's very much all gray. Yeah. Right. Except when we're talking about fear yeah. uh-huh. and except when we're talking about safety, that's when things, obviously there's a spectrum in between, sure. but there is a very, very black and white discerning amygdala that says you're under threat. You are not allowed to take resources and send them to your reproductive system right now. Right. right? You're not allowed to take my resources and send them to the immune system. I'm taking those. Right. And those are going to the skeletal muscles so you can run if you need to. But that means that when you multiply that times time, thinking about illness and this relationship between stress and illness, you take that amount of resource allocation that's going on, it really reframes illness as a resource allocation problem. Yeah. Right? Our, our amygdala is exploited by society and all the responsibilities and all the things that are going on and everything we've been taught to be overactive in detecting newness as threat. Yeah. Right. But newness is and, and diversity and difference from us are literally the thing that enriches the quality of our lives more than anything else, mm. universally speaking. So we're now accidentally trained or accidentally in that we did not choose to train ourselves to generally speaking to perceive the thing that makes our lives rich the source of the richness in our lives as threatening Hmm. that is confusing for us yeah right and so when we start to think about the amygdala not it's not saying you're afraid it's saying watch out 
there's something that's unfamiliar to you around the corner that's in this area, right? And maybe that's an actual threat, but maybe it's just somebody you've never met before. Maybe it's something about yourself that you didn't know you knew before, right? Could be any any of the above. Then we have the ability to literally retrain that part by remembering one of the common sentiments that comes from things like ketamine-assisted therapy or uh, MDMA-assisted therapy or profound meditative states, which is that we're all human first. Before we're anything else, before we are black, white, yellow, green, whatever, or before we wear the clothes that we're wearing, and we're all human. Mm -hmm. And if we're all human, then we, by definition, have a heck of a lot more in common than we do different. Like infinitely more. Yeah. Right? Like our DNA, what is it? It's like 99.99 whatever percent <laughs> I mean, the same. Yeah. And we have the same fundamental wants, needs, and desires. We all want air, water, food, shelter, connection, and acceptance by our community. Yeah. Right. And to feel like some part of something bigger. We all want that. So if we can admit that we all want that and we all want to feel safe and in control most of the time, mm-hmm. then we can give that to each other for free without actually and help each other feel safe without actually like requiring anything in return other than just that safety. Yeah. Right. Cause that's something we can give to each other for free. The reason I'm in business is people forgot how to give that to each other. So they pay me, you know, but literally any of us can do that for each other. And now it's about relearning how to do that and, and psychedelic medicines and things like Apollo that we developed to are to help do this. It's about helping people feel safe enough in their own skin So not just in the office, but in their day-to-day lives so that they can say, oh, wait, actually that fear response, that amygdala is blasting off. It's telling me I should be afraid right now. Well, I'm not running from a lion. There's nothing around the corner that's about to get me. Why do I, I just, you know, you can settle down, bro. It's okay. Right. Yeah, but modernity tends to hijack the amygdala. And here we are in, in incessant sympathetic overload. And that has all sorts of endocrine knock-on impacts and right. metabolic knock-on impacts, et cetera. And so, I mean, you, you look at the, um, at the correlation um, or relationship between uh, stress and mental disorders and physiological disorders. I mean, they're like... Hand in hand. They're hand in hand. In fact, they're really not any different, you know, in some ways. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think what is again reassuring is that there are a whole variety of modalities and protocols that we can adopt to essentially move ourselves into parasympathetic safety. Right. And in some ways it like, they're very, uh, intuitive. Um, that doesn't mean they're easy to do. <laughs> in fact, they're very difficult to adopt sometimes. But if you think about like, what is fight or flight like? What is it like to be in that state? Oh, okay, well, my respiratory rate is going up. <sighs> I'm breathing, you know, I'm breathing really quickly. Well, what the breath is this incredible tool that doesn't always have to be uh, involuntary. In fact, you know, we have um, conscious control over our breath such that we can almost trick ourselves back into a parasympathetic state. Mm-hmm. So maybe unpack, you can just talk about breath, but you can also talk about touch um, and other different kinds of protocols that we can consciously adopt that can then change 
over time mm-hmm. are bottom up uh, habits. So this so it starts with it starts with three things, which are the thinking about the understanding of what it means to feel safe, which is for us to feel in control mm-hmm. and to and to know that we're in control of certain things. The second thing is to actually do the thing that makes us and reminds us that we're in control. And the third thing is to actually feel it and then rinse and repeat. Okay. So this is based on sort of a a very well understood cognitive behavioral therapy framework, which is the relationship between our our thoughts, understanding, behaviors, and feeling. So if you think about anxiety, just to break anxiety down into the risk of being called a reductionist, what I will say is that most anxiety that we experience in our day-to-day lives comes from spending our limited time. We only have a hundred, if you imagine we only have whatever much however much time we're awake each day. We have 100% of that available to pay attention to stuff, right? If we choose to pay attention to stuff that we don't have control over during that time, say 70% of that time, like what other people think about us, which we don't have control over, or what we could have done, what we did, how we're upset about something we did the day before, what have you, then we are ensuring that we feel out of control 70% of the time Mm. or more. And if we spend that time in turn recognizing that we can choose to pay attention to things we do have control over, like our breath in any moment, movement, physical movement in any moment, soothing touch, applying soothing touch to yourself, we can do it any moment, or what we listen to, our attention, and music, song, right? These things we can do in any moment. All of a sudden, we feel in control that much more of the time, which then makes us feel safe. So it's really, which then tells our amygdala that, hey, you're safe enough to feel in control right now. You're safe enough to feel this breath. You're safe enough to give attention to that breath or this movement or this song or this feeling in your body. You can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. If you were running from a lion, this is the, this is the criti- critical understanding of the hardwired, what, can, what can't be, be bent or what can't be broken, right? Yeah. What's hardwired is going to take over because we've evolved it over millions and millions of years, it is not going away. So if we were actually under real survival threat, you best believe your sympathetic nervous system is going to kick on and not allow you to be, to be thinking about how attracted you are to your predator right now. Right. (laughs) This is a very real thing. And so that understanding what's hardwired in that way is because, you know, being attracted to our predator would lead to certain demise, right? Our bodies are okay. hardwired to not do that. So Stock, when Stockholm syndrome or something. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. Well, that's the human version, right? Yeah. Where we, we take a lot of time to convince somebody that they're <laughs> their predator or their capture captive. Uh, their um, they are who they're captive to is actually somebody that they are very respectful of. Right. Which is very interesting. But it's this idea that um, you know we have control over a lot more than we think we do, and it's the feeling of being out of control that drives fear which then drives us to make impulsive, selfish decisions, which is that culture element you were talking about. Yeah. So we have the ability and only we have the ability to remind ourselves that we are safe because we're in control of how we feel in this moment. If we can regulate our nervous system by taking a deep breath or moving our moving at all, doing a dance, listening to a song, you know, putting some touch on your body, feeling your Apollo, whatever it is, any of those four things, touch, music, listening, uh, movement, and breath, you can literally switch 
the resources in the nervous system over to the parasympathetic recovery side in as mm -hmm. little as seconds. It just takes a little practice. Mm -hmm. And just by starting to do that, you recondition and rewire your own nervous system. Mm -hmm. And that creates the fertile soil for neuroplasticity, mm. right? Yeah. Because you're make, reminding the body that's safe enough to learn. I'm safe enough to listen to what I want to listen to right now, not what the environment is telling it, me it needs my attention. Maybe it doesn't need my attention. Maybe I need my attention to be focused on Jeff right now. Yeah. You know? Or you're focused on expansion or you're in a state that allows for expansion versus preservation. Exactly. Um, and I'll say you sound like if Marcus Aurelius was a neuroscientist. <laughs> um, uh, I got pretty into stoicism for a while, and, and essentially what you're outlining is a central tenet of stoicism. Um, and it's uh, even reflected in, you know, there's like a lot of Christian theology that was built upon stoicism. So the Rhinal Niebuhr serenity prayer is essentially exactly what you're talking about, is focusing on the things that you can control. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then also... very old stuff. Yeah. Very old stuff. Absolutely. Neuroscience just catching up. <laughs> In order to, for example, like adopt a meditation practice, you know, where you can witness phenomena arising moment to moment in a field of awareness and, and not, you know, fixate or identify with it, et cetera, you need to be in a certain, uh, already in a, in a pre-existing state of some degree of stability. It's hard to tell someone who has, you know, severe depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or et cetera to, you know, meditate, to be honest. Right. Because um, Also because a quiet mind for them or the idea or concept of a quiet mind, if they can even remember what that feels like, is often not a safe place for them. Mm. Right. If you have thoughts that are negative about yourself, you've been telling yourself that come up in your mind every time you quiet your mind. Right. How quiet... How safe do you feel with a quiet mind? You probably run from it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, there was um, a paper that came out, which I believe was titled, A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind, mm. um, which is a sort of a very poetic um, title for a science paper. <laughs> um, but um, it, essentially you know, what it pointed to was that the highest rates of self-reported well-being, of happiness, were associated with someone's capability to conjoin their thoughts and actions. Essentially that what you're thinking about is also yoked with what you are doing. Mm -hmm. And the misalignment of those things tends to lead to a lot of um, dissatisfaction and frustration and, and unhappiness. But of course, how many of us have incessant monkey mind, right? I mean, even if we're thinking about something that's wonderful, mm -hmm. it's still disconnected from the thing that we're doing. So like Thich Nhat Hanh Often. has the famous poem, you know, when you do the dishes, do the dishes, mm -hmm. because that is a window into happiness and contentment and you're here all here right now in the everlasting present um but you know it's easy for you know thoughts to be branches and 
people to be monkeys swinging riotously from one to one, from one to the other. And, you know, the research points to the fact that that phenomenon leads to a great deal of unhappiness and suffering. So, you know, how can we become more mindful um, to be in a state of non-judgmental sacred presence? You know, okay, that's maybe a little easier for me that has sort of the disposable time (laughs) to think about even the concept. Um, But, you know, for, for many people, you know, some other forms of invasive therapy are necessary, that it's not just going to happen from protocols that are like meditation or let's say, you know, nutrition, which is a huge one. Mm -hmm. And we could probably talk about the relationship between nutrition and mental health for a good 40 hours. Um, And maybe we will, um, but not today. So let's talk about, you know, specific kinds of, of more invasive therapy um, I'm not sure that's really the best chosen word. Um, but the next level up, from the, the next level up from the things you can do on your own. Yeah. So, yeah. like, so let's talk about ketamine-assisted therapy specifically, because I know that that's some it's an area of focus um, for you, and it's legal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only legal psychedelic medicine, yeah. currently, that, for use by clinicians. You know, which is which is huge because. Even though there's, I think, plenty of opportunity for experimentation around the edges of things, you know that you're going to get like regulated dosages and all this kind of stuff, which we'll get into. A lot of safety associated with that. Um, So give us a little primer on ketamine and and the history of ketamine and where it came from and how it was typically been used. Uh, So I can't can't give you the the full story, but I can tell you that it was uh, synthesized for the first time, I believe in 1956. Mm -hmm. Um, It was used subsequently as an anesthetic and found to have very potent uh, anesthetic properties. So relieving of pain, physical pain was the focus originally and trying to understand um, and basically in an effort to create new pain relieving molecules that were not, as that didn't have as much risk of suppressing respiration, right? As res- opiates or something like that, right? Like, o- yeah, opiates yeah. and opiates combined with alcohol, for instance, will dramatically suppress respiration and results in a lot of overdose. Right. Um, and then also, of course, the traditional anesthetics, like the inhaled anesthetics that we use in surgery, that we don't know how they work, haven't for over a hundred <laughs> years, but they knock you out. Propofol knocks you out, stops breathing. Right? We don't. That stuff is useful for certain things, but if they're also harsh, they can have a lot of. Uh, you know, withdrawal effects people have when they come back into their bodies afterwards. And ketamine was a nice discovery because it's kind of a very, very fast acting relative, you know, considering the risk profile of anesthetics, extremely safe and carried around in a syringe. And when, you know, the first major use case of it, major, major, in addition to the operating room was, it was used in Vietnam and right. during war to, you know, pop soldiers who were really injured so that they didn't freak out because any any good medic knows that if your patient is on the table or in the field and they are really worried about surviving, then their chances of survival go way down. And if they are feeling calm and breathing at a lower level and their met- metabolism goes down, then their chances of survival go way up. Their chances of bleeding out go way down. Mm. And so we want people to be calm. Going back to the stress 
pathway in survival. And so ketamine ended up going through that pathway for a very long time and becoming a commonplace anesthetic pre-surgery for patients who were vulnerable populations in large part, women, pregnant women, children, horses, very gentle creatures that require very gentle anesthesia um, because they don't recover well from standard anesthesia and things like that. Um, common animal anesthetic and common human human anesthetic for vulnerable populations. Yeah, I mean, I think it got the rap for a while as being sort of a, a horse sedative, right? And so... Right, but in the yeah. context that horses are are would require like more than us, or require yeah. like a like a stronger thing. They actually horses are the most, some of the most gentle, uh, empath- empathetic animals that we interact with on a regular basis. So, for them, they actually needed something that was much more gentle uh, mm-hmm. than what we typically use with humans, which is why we uh, move towards it, yeah. um, and why we it's commonplace. Um, but I think that down the road in the '90s, in particular, ketamine was found. And I think it was observed before that, but in, in the 90s, it started to become common, more commonly observed as a uh, have an antidepressant effects yeah. after being administered and, and even psychedelic or mind-altering you know, effects along the lines of revealing people's subconscious to themselves, which is in a lot of ways, that's sort of what psychedelic means is to reveal the mind. So ketamine was found down you know, 30, 40 years after its discovery to actually have effects like that and then found to be helpful for depression, which is very exciting. Mm. Yeah, I love the etymology of psychedelics, the psyche, which is mind and what is it, delos is to show or yeah, something? To, yeah, to show, to reveal. Yeah. Um, such a good name. It's such a good name. Um, so yeah, it's a powerful analgesic and I think it was the official um, description of it, at least one of the early official descriptions of it was a dissociative anesthetic. Right. So anesthetic, we have a general sense of what that means. What does dissociative mean? So dissociative refers to, in this case, like a, almost like a separation between mind and body. So if we can accept that in general, even though we may perceive them as separate, the mind and body are actually intimately interconnected and they are constantly talking to each other on a regular moment-to-moment basis that's so seamless that we don't even realize it's happening, right? Our mind is naturally regulating our body's blood flow, breath rate, heart rate, blood pressure, everything, all at the same time we're having this conversation without thinking about it. So intimately interconnected. Now all of a sudden you take a dissociative anesthetic like ketamine and now you, your mind and body are dissociated, which means that they're still interacting with each other, but there's almost like a delay between the interaction. There's like mm-hmm. the brakes are put on a little bit so that the, they can almost experience each other as separate parts of the same thing. Hmm. And I think that, and I think that it's, it's, it almost, again, we don't fully understand this aspect of ketamine, but I, you know, it seems that, and we don't understand the molecular pathways either completely. It seems to be partially related probably to glutamate, to opiate, opiate receptor activation, and to probably serotonin and dopamine as well. And, and it is creating a dissociation, a separation from pain. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a way, what we talk about when we say dissociative anesthetic is emotional pain and physical pain, contrary to popular opinion, are basically doing the same thing in the brain. Yeah. Right. They look the same. They generally have the same impact, if not addressed. And ketamine dissociates our identity, who we know ourselves to be from the pain. So you mm. can experience me 
myself, pain, separate. Yeah. Right. You can become the witness. Right. And if you can become the witness and you can understand what is modifiable in this situation and what is not, right? What can I change? What is my body doing? Because it's hardwired to do that. And what control do I have over the way I'm experiencing this thing? Mm-hmm. That's I interpreted as part of me possibly for decades. Right. Is dissociation um, related to hallucination in any way? I don't really like the word hallucination. I rarely use it. I think that (laughs) it is a word that implies to most people that they're perceiving something that isn't real. Right. And I would argue that when you are in the experience with medicine or dreams or what have you, that we can hardly say that what people are experiencing is not real. No. It's just a different part of the experience, right? It's all there. It's all material. It's accessible. Normally, we're just... Not yeah, tuned into it. Yeah, and it falls outside of social convention. And we're, oh. and we're not taught. We're not taught how to listen to it, right? Like, yeah. like maybe you have a glowing colored aura around you that I've seen some people train themselves to be able to witness and describe it and draw it and even photograph it, but I can't see it because I've never learned to. But maybe it's still there. It's right? still there. Or maybe just our spatial instruments are too limited. Sure. You also know, that. We, we could say the sky is blue on a cloudless day. And that is a very lovely way to get along. You know, it's a social institution, but we see, you know, we see across a tiny sliver of the visible light of the, or of the light spectrum and blue light happens to be somewhere around 400 nanometers or something like that. So yeah, the sky is blue, but that's just an intersubjective agreement. Exactly. (laughs) And, um, and when we are able to transcend uh, the limitations of our five senses, in let's say a psychedelic state, well then, you know, we are perceiving things outside of the realm of our five senses, but we don't have any, we don't have a vocabulary for that. We don't have any training for that. And so it seems like a quote unquote hallucination. Right. It seems like it's not real. Right. But it might be the closest thing we get to objective reality. <laughs> we don't. We don't really know. Right. Um, what I do know is, is that what's happening here is more or less a subjective reality. So, anyways, as far but, as it, but an agreed to one, yeah, mutually absolutely. agreed to that you said earlier, which is really important. Yeah. It's interesting because we can tune to other versions of this or other aspects of it, rather. Right. If this, if we consider reality to be infinite. And consciousness itself to be infinite and that our awareness of it is maybe the tip of the iceberg sticking out of the water than okay. what's beneath the surface. A hundred billion more of these tips that we're not aware of. So then when you add in something like ketamine, say you've been engaging in some strange behavior your whole life, which is every time I every time I hear certain loud noises like traffic or jackhammers, I really want an ice cream and now it's made me very fat. And pre-diabetic right and because so, i can't resist i've like highly yeah. trained this thing because that's what soothes me as a kid and you don't even realize that it's a problem you're just like i don't know why i've gained so much weight i you know but really you're just living in an area where now you're more noisy and more disturbed and more restless and that leads you to eat more ice cream and it's all completely beneath the surface of the water and then you yeah. administer something like ketamine and ketamine t- tunes your filter our, our consciousness filter that little that little 
part above the surface of the water that just aims it a little bit differently, right? Now all right. of a sudden you're beneath the surface of the water is more illuminated and you could see, oh, oh, there was something that happened in my childhood where I had a bunch of really uncomfortable experiences in loud, noisy areas and my parents just took me to get ice cream and that's what made me feel better. So now I have this association that I never realized I had before. I don't need to do that. I'm safe in these environments, right? Yeah. And then you literally create a window of opportunity to question the way you were doing things enough to recognize that you can choose a different path. Yeah. I think what's interesting there is that we think of memory as something that has happened in the past, sort of this irrecoverable condition or something. And, uh, but of course, every memory every experience of the past is happening in the present. Mm -hmm. So as we rekindle that memory in our field of awareness, it's, it's labile in essence. So we can, and by that, I mean, we can reshape our understanding and perception and, and association with it. But, but again, you know, as we spoke about before, our five senses really uh, anchor us to the default mode network because they are the, you know, because of, of the biological imperative, because of many, many, many good reasons. Yeah, but now, the way we, ways we were taught to take in information. That's right. But now here we are, uh, you know, with a ketamine infusion, and all of a sudden we're not necessarily relying just on our normal five senses, which underwrite the default mode network, we're actually roaming around a whole other kind of consciousness that's not spotlight in nature. Now, it might not be floodlight in nature either, but we've, but we've been able to move the spotlight, you know, into what might have been a, a darker and more shadowy part of our, of our psyche. Or, or the, uh, yeah, or the opposite, right? Or, the or something opposite. that's like your light and your source of joy and meaning in the world, right? Yeah. And the point is you can shine it anywhere. And if you can shine it anywhere, then we need to be all that more careful when we step into that psychedelic realm yeah. where we're intentional with how we want these, how, what we want to experience and that we're intentional knowing that when we go underneath the surface that anything could pop up. So surround yourself with the support and the, ideally the guides that you need to make sure that when things pop up that maybe you weren't anticipating that you are prepared to navigate it, right? right. It's just like going on a underwater dive in a foreign territory, right? Yeah. Have a rope tied to yourself <laughs> so that somebody can pull you out if you get in a place that yeah. you're not comfortable navigating. Yeah. Well, you're a more than adept buoy <laughs> for people. Um, and that we'll get into kind of the protocol of, of, the therapy itself. I do want to just pry at the um, the action of mechanism of ketamine to the degree that we can understand it. So, you know, sort of the popular wisdom is that it blocks the NM NMDA receptor, essentially the glutamate receptor. Um, how valid is, is that? Is that just kind of popular science or, you know, just sort of skimming the surface or what's, what's going on there on a biochemical, biochemical level? 
it's it's hard to say because ketamine is such a diverse substance. It's one of the psychedelic, I mean, interestingly enough, it's one of the psychedelic medicines we know the least about its mechanism. Um, but it is exquisitely safe, which is nice. Uh, and it has very few side effects when used at the doses we use it at, but it is definitely a complex mechanism. Most of the other psychedelic medicines that we know of that we were talking about specifically activate the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor as right. maybe the first line down the down the path of, of receptors. The ketamine is acting at NMDA, so that's definitely happening. It's acting at the opiate receptor, right. which seems to be really important despite what most people thought. Um, there was a big study that came out of Stanford that was very, very fascinating. Um, I'm trying to think of when it was, maybe 10 years ago now, that showed that if you administer naltrexone or, or naloxone, which is an opioid receptor blocker, mm-hmm. to somebody who's experiencing ketamine, similar to the study that we talked about with administering a 5-HG2A receptor blocker and experiencing a, uh, psilocybin or LSD, right. that, that the opioid receptor blocker blocked almost all the effects of ketamine. Really? So, but the but ketamine is not that active at the opioid receptor compared to opiates or any other you know yeah. molecule that activates that receptor. It's actually a relatively weak activator of that receptor. So why would that be at the top of the chain? So we really don't know. Mm-hmm. We know that it is a multi uh, multi pronged mechanism of action. It is one of the most mysterious of all of the psychedelics in terms of mechanism. We know more about things like ayahuasca, in fact, than we know about ketamine right. in terms of mechanism. It does, so, indu- introduce, it does induce one thing that's interesting, though, what we do know is whatever it's doing, molecularly speaking, it's increasing neurogenesis right. and neuroplasticity, yeah. probably by two methods, one of which, and maybe three, maybe all three methods we mentioned earlier, neurogenesis, making new neurons, which... We've some early data to show, not not me personally, but there is early data to show in lab studies that ketamine is inducing making of new neurons, which is pretty amazing because not that much does that other than psilocybin and some other psychedelic medicines. And then, um, and then it also increases the growing or regrowth of dendritic spines, which right. is the repair of old and dying neurons. And it also increases the formation of new connections between neuron synaptogenesis. So that's really the, the triple threat of optimizing learning is hit by ketamine, which is wow. and possibly other psychedelics as well. But it's just fascinating to see that you can do that and ketamine can do that. And in some cases without a person involved. So some of these studies were done in cells in culture, hmm. right? So without, really? with just molecule alone added onto cells, at the right dose, you can induce the regrowth of Synapses, stem cells, yeah. nerves. Um, yeah, because we're taught that after age 25 or so, we don't really produce new neurons. But that's We a, were taught that. We were taught that. Um, Unless they want to be produced, yeah. apparently. <laughs> apparently. Um, okay. So, you know, why did we get so preoccupied with serotonin when glutamate seems to be the primary neurotransmitter across synapses in the brain? I think that, I think we honestly don't know what the primary neurotransmitter is. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think serotonin may very well be the one 
mm-hmm. we're starting to see because of all the concerted action around meaning making mm-hmm. and some of the studies we're starting to see in the psychedelic world around serotonin being this essential critical receptor to meaning making and to emotion regulation and you know what what is what is life without meaning right like i mean literally meaning is at the center of everything we do and everything we know and and why and potentially even how intense it gets entrained right because we know from just day-to-day life that things that are more meaningful we remember more Right. So if we remember it more then that must mean that we have stronger connections around those things, which must mean that those neurons are changing their epigenetic code more for meaningful experiences. We can draw that correlation. It's not known that that's actually what's happening yet, but I think there's a really interesting theory to under, you know, to think about how we understand how the brain is actually rewiring and retraining itself Mm -hmm. through these experiences. Mm Mm-hmm. And that learning and is something we can do at any time in our lives. Is there any relationship between um, ketamine, its relationship with glutamate, and, for example, the triggering or activation of certain pathways like mTOR? So this is getting pretty much in the weeds here, but essentially mammalian target of rapamycin, which is known as essentially a, gro- a cellular growth pathway. Does that pathway need to be activated in order to um, reify uh, neurobiogenesis? It's hard to say because there's also studies that have shown that there are benefits of people taking an inge- in animals with rapamycin, right? right? Which I think is an mTOR inhibitor. I know. So it's, so it's, it's interesting. That's, that's why I think that the glumates system is interesting, but it's not, it, it's so, you know, I think what we've seen with in neuroscience is the glutamate is so much everywhere that it's like the water, right? Like we <laughs> right. know it's, yeah. it's water to humans. It's water to animals. We know it's fundamental or the air it's fundamental for life. So it's kind of boring to study because it's so ubiquitous throughout the brain and body that it's just the default positive excitatory neurochemical communicator molecule. Right. Whereas serotonin is more like, the rare, special, specially prepared feast that you would have on a very specific day that gives you that unique experience around feeling really special in an experience, right? So it's more along the lines of it is cre- it's not used in, in every single neural interaction. It's used in very specific neural interactions around mood and around, around meaningfulness. And that it's the similar to calcium in the brain around oxidative stress, calcium and it has such is such an interesting molecule because it's so common, and yet there's this huge discrepancy between how much calcium is outside the cell versus inside, which allows these tiny shifts in calcium level by, for example, activating a serotonin receptor to cause dramatic downstream changes in the cell, mm. like dramatic, game changing, even to the point of death. If there's slightly too much calcium. Wow. Right. Yeah. So the it's real so it's 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 actually interesting that we're we can it's not to say that there's it's it's not a competition right it's <laughs> it, it's it's hard to say which one's more important they're both important yeah. we need both to live and to live well but but that serotonin may be more critical in the specific pathway around meaning whereas glutamate may be more important around just day-to-day functioning of ner- neurons yeah so yeah let me traverse the the terrain 
of neurotransmitters. Just one last moment here and talk about um, gamma amino butyric acid, GABA, um, as a player kind of in this cocktail. So GABA is, well, the uptake of GABA has been kind of the target of benzodiazepines for a very, very long time. So that the more GABA hits the GABA receptors, the greater sort of decrease in the levels of anxiety. Um, what is the relationship here kind of in this mix with GABA? Uh, so GABA is a neurotransmitter and neurotransmitter system. It's also very complex, similar to glutamate. It would be like the equivalent of glutamate being everywhere and it's excitatory. GABA is everywhere and it's inhibitory. Yeah. And so it's important for turning, for complementing glutamate activity by regulating the up and down with glutamate. Glutamate is the up and GABA is the down. Right. So certain GABA ergic molecules can turn the brain down when we want it to turn down like alcohol is a GABAergic molecule. Mm. Benzodiazepines in a lot of ways were like oral pills that in that give a similar effect as alcohol. Similar sedative GABAergic response barbiturates are kind of similar. Um, and they're just generally sedating, but the problem is they're sedating globally speaking. So it's not like you just get a burst of GABA naturally in a specific part of the brain and that's get, you know, naturally that's what you're getting the effect to get this particular outcome you want. But when you take a benzodiazepine, you're getting global GABA stimulation. So that's like the whole brain is suppressed in activity, which is why you get unintended consequences with alcohol and benzos and barbiturates and generally sedatives and hypnotics, like impaired judgment, hmm. impaired intuition, impaired insight, being able to look inside yourself and be self, self aware, um, impaired ability to be empathetic because your sensation is tuned down. Your ability to listen is turned down mm. when you have sedatives like benzodiazepines on board. So the GABA system, so the glutamate system is really important for listening and turning certain listening parts of the brain on. It's one way to think about it and turning on judgment. If we want judgment, turning on insight, if we want insight, turning on emp empathy it needs to be fed glutamate as well as other neurotransmitters to activate those parts of the brain. When you take something like a benzodiazepine, it's just turning all of that off for a certain amount of time, mm -hmm. yeah. which can be very useful when you're treating a seizure or a disorder of overactive brain activity. Right. It could be very, very dangerous when people are taking it chronic daily over long periods of time and they don't realize because their insight's impaired. Yeah. So let's talk about um, protocols for the administration of ketamine. Um, so I guess the first question I would have was, is what are the different methods of delivery and what are the benefits of various different methods? Let's start there. So ketamine is interesting because again, as the only real legal psychedelic medicine that we have, it can be administered in lots of different ways. And traditionally it was administered by anesthesiologists who were giving it IV intravenously or intramuscularly through injection. Um, it was not traditionally given orally or, or um, intranasally. Right. But over the years, there's been more intranasal and oral formulations that have come out that allow for absorption through the mouth. And there's very poor gut absorption for ketamine. So unfortunately and unfortunately, because ketamine is so 
has, you know, it's been legal for so long and the toxicity profile is fairly well understood and, and it's, you know, fairly low risk in comparison to everything else that is out there that it is often administered in the easiest way, but it's not the way that gets the best outcomes, which would be administering it without psychotherapy. And, and because it's a psychedelic, it naturally, I mean, psychedelic aside, even SSRIs are proven to work better with psychotherapy, right? So, so psychedelic aside, any medicine pretty much that's used for treatment of a mental illness, any medicine pretty much has shown in studies it works better when accompanied by psychotherapy than medicine alone. Right. But, so you want to wrap some form of psychotherapy, talk therapy around right. the um, infusion of, of ketamine. And, and so you want to really uh, uh, avoid self-administration unless you need small doses to kind of carry you from, from therapy to therapy, but we can, we can get to that. Yeah, there's yeah. different ways to approach it, right? I, th I think that going back and taking it all the way back to what we started this conversation about, which was, you know, understanding the serotonin pathway and why we use medicines that we use, like Zoloft and Prozac, what we're talking about is that that ketamine, that, that, um, that all of these medicines have been shown when used to treat whatever mental illness they're treating to have better outcomes with psychotherapy. So it's not argued. When you're entering into the psychedelic space, you start to see that people will administer medicine because ketamine has these natural like, effects that just come from the medicine alone. For instance, you can inject somebody, which is often seen particularly in, in high acuity settings, you can inject somebody with ketamine who is severely depressed and even suicidal. And for two, a couple of weeks afterwards, they'll be no longer depressed and no longer suicidal. Mm -hmm. How amazing is that, right? But if you rely on the medicine and, and just schedule that person for a two-week ketamine injection every two weeks, you're not actually getting to the root of the problem. Right. Right. You're really just creating another crutch. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how amazing the medicine is. It doesn't matter whether it's an SSRI you take every day or an amphetamine you take every day or whether it's a, a, a an incredible medicine like ketamine that can radically reverse outcomes in these illnesses. If you, it's administered in a way that's habitual, it will become uh, it, we will become reliant on it. We will externalize the healer to the medicine. Right. and to the person delivering it rather than to our internalize it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So this fundamental philosophy around healing is really goes back to Hippocrates and goes back to ancient Eastern traditions about, again, the healer being in us. And so then the medicine with ketamine is activating that. It's turning off the default mode network slightly, mm -hmm. turning on our observer mind slightly and allowing us to observe ourselves for who we are and observe the opportunity for growth that's in front of us. And doing, and that we can choose to do things differently, right? And and that's where it becomes much more highly effective to have a guide or a sherpa, exactly, uh, shepherding you through that that um, that new state of being, essentially, right? Because because um, you, you can equally learn if you're increasing neuroplasticity non-specifically, right? You could equally mm -hmm. learn maladaptive coping strategies by accident right. like medicine reliance is just a very simple example if you don't understand how the medicine works and you start to rely on the medicine for the outcome then you learn medicine reliance and that's what you're teaching your brain to do mm. whereas what we want to be teaching the brain to do is how to recreate the experience the medicine is giving us without the medicine
right. important caveat. So as a guide, um, is it appropriate to introduce, um, let's say, a negative memory uh, within the context of a ketamine therapy such that, you know, people are coming at the memory from a new headspace in order to reframe it? Or is that sort of uh, dangerous waters there? That's an interesting thought. I've actually never really thought about it that way before, but I can see why you you might think to, that that would be something that we would do. Um, it's kind of like exposure, right? You expose right. somebody to something that might, they might find threatening. Yeah, w- with a new headspace. With a new headspace. Yeah. So I think all, what we what we often take is a similar but what we call non-directive approach because ultimately what we've seen and what we teach in the psychedelic healing space with ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, and, and going back again to the indigenous practices around ayahuasca and and other ancient plant medicines, mescaline, uh, peyote, et cetera, whatever was meant to come up will come up, mm-hmm. right? Whatever needs to be addressed will be addressed yeah. because our emotions are latent underneath the surface. So the surface may appear calm of the water underneath the tip of the iceberg, right? The surface may appear calm, but it's actually very restless under there. And there's a lot going on. And there's a lot that wants to be addressed, that wants to be acknowledged and wants to be brought in as part of the whole. But we don't necessarily know which parts are going to show their face right away. And so that's where this guidance is so critical because we, we want to have an intentional process by which we open ourselves up to allow only the things that are the most meaningful to us and the most helpful to readdress, to address. And we, can't, we don't always have control. We don't know what's going to come up. Anything mm-hmm. could come up, right? So we, a lot of it is really just preparing someone that for anything, right? It's just yeah. you. And if it's just you, there's nothing to be afraid of. So let's work with that. Yeah. Just hovering over delivery method for a moment, is it more optimal... Um, to deliver intravenously um, versus intranasally or through kind of oral sublingually just in in order to have greater control over dosage. And as it pertains to dosage, is there generally like a, what would you call it, like a bolus up front or is is the dosage kind of spread out over the duration of the therapy? There's a lot of nuance to it, right? So I think the goal that a lot of people think of is when you're talking about ketamine. So, and it's also, there's a lot of disagreement around it, right? There's (laughs) even people who believe there, if you think about how 80 to 90%, maybe 90 plus percent of the people who currently administer ketamine in the US, over a thousand providers probably now, are not providing psychotherapy with the medicine. Hmm. Okay, so let's start out there. Well, they're not psychotherapists. They're not there psychotherapists. Might be or, they might be anesthesiologists or pain management. And they might even be people. psychiatrists who never yeah. learned therapy because that was also common for a long time. Going yeah. back to what we were talking about earlier with Thomas Detry and the eradication of or, and the, of the psychoanalytic model, bringing in the molecular medicine model of psychiatry, they threw out and tossed out a lot of the psychoanalysts and psychotherapists who didn't want to buy in 100% to the molecular model. Right. Turns out, what do we now know? It's actually the combination of both. It's where both the molecular model and the psychotherapeutic model interface. Of course it is. Holy cow, right? <laughs> that, that's where the answer is, right? Yeah. That's where the opportunity therein lies yeah. to potentially use the cure word 
for mental illness mm. because we're actually getting to the core. We're using the medicines respectfully in the way they were meant to be used to actually get to the core of the problem. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about all of these different ways ketamine can be administered, well, what are you trying to get out of it, right? Are you trying to, if you, if you talk to those 90% of people who administer ketamine who are not doing therapy, they'll tell you in large part that the psychedelic effects of the ketamine are a side effect of the experience, not the healing effect. Whereas I would say, and anybody who does a psychotherapy, I think would say that it's potently healing to have these psychedelic mind revealing experiences, Right. but there's still a lot of debate in the field. And, and so then the question becomes, well, what's actually happening? Do you care about having yeah. this huge peak state for an hour from an IM experience or an IV experience? Or do you care about having a low level all the time from an intranasal, you know, and then well, right. we don't really know. So then what do we look at? We look at abuse rates. We look at dosing frequency. We look at side effect rates and Side effects are relatively low for ketamine, but people who use intranasal tend to abuse it more. Right. And so we try so, not to use that as much. Right. So there's an intranasal that was developed by Johnson & Johnson, Janssen, I guess mm -hmm. it is, um, that's S-ketamine, right? Mm -hmm. So is there any real distinction between S-ketamine and R-ketamine and just ketamine? Yeah. So most ketamine is S and R combined, which is called racemic ketamine. Because the way, and this is one of the, going back to like the early days of organic chemistry. So we're, you know, we're what all organic molecules have a mirror image of each other. Right. And when they exist in nature in almost every circumstance, they exist in equal parts, left and right, R and S parts. Each mirror image is roughly 50-50. And one of those mirror images of the molecule might be more active in certain ways at the receptor site right. than the other mirror image. So... It turns out that racemic ketamine, which is typical ketamine that we'd get from a pharmacy, would have equal parts R and S. And then S ketamine is just the S part. Right. And they're both equally effective with the diff with the difference that the S part, the S ketamine that's S alone, has a slightly higher potency. So you can give lower dose to get the same effects uh -huh. that you would get with racemic ketamine, but it also costs 10 times as much. So in most cases, we still, and most providers still just use racemic general ketamine. Right. And was S-ketamine somewhat of a ploy for the pharmaceutical industry to get in on ketamine? I mean, for sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you're a pharmaceutical yeah. company, it's no brainer, right? That's their whole business model is on patenting novel <laughs> compounds. And if you can right. find one of those miraculous novel, novel compounds, it's actually a derivative right. of an existing compound. Right. You're in business. That's in like business. a cash cow. Yeah. Um, and is it easier to control the dissociative components of the trip if you're administering, uh, intravenously, for example, so you can kind of like, if someone has a little bit of discomfort around dissociation that you can kind of pull back or, you know, press the accelerator or whatever, or is it yeah. pretty minimal? That's pretty nuanced at this juncture. I mean, I would say that honestly, if the best thing to do is prepare someone for whatever's going to come up, yeah, right? Because you don't necessarily know how much somebody's going to dissociate. And most people who are experiencing ketamine are nonverbal during the experience. They can talk, but they're not mm. actively communicating with you the whole time. And they might feel like they're in another world or they might have forgotten what words are, how to use them or how to flap their mouth holes. <laughs> so, you know, you don't, you don't, uh, you're not necessarily going to get an accurate feedback from somebody. I think the, 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 the unfortunate part about IV, even though it's used frequently is that you can't 
most people who have an IV in their arm are not feeling free to move around. Right. And sometimes with ketamine or any psychedelic medicine, when people are under the influence of it, they want to freely move because our bodies store energy and they store tension. And as soon as you are in a place where you mentally recognize there's a certain part of your body that's storing energy or tension, energy in the form of tension around some feeling or some event like something that made you sad 10 years ago and you realize that's being stored in the middle of your back, you're going to do every single thing you can in that moment to stretch that part of your back out, right? And if you have an IV in your arm, you can't do that. Right. So I think I think the movement aspect of mm -hmm. the psychedelic experience is extremely therapeutic. I think the body element of it is mm -hmm. extremely therapeutic. It's underutilized in the experience. Um, we don't do that much with it, but in IV, it's completely ignored in yeah. general. With IM, I think the goal, the best way to experience ketamine, if there was one best way would be intramuscular yeah. because you can just get an injection in your arm. They just get, you just get one injection and right. then you, within three to five minutes, you're at the peak state. So you're in peak for almost the entire hour of the experience or, or hour and a half. And then you come down and you're out of the peak experience and you gradually come back into your body and, right. and you're fine. And then, you know, with, with oral, oral works very well. And that would be my second close, close second choice to intramuscular, but oral, you have to swish it in your mouth and then you only absorb 30% of what you swish. Right. Right. And so then there's, and then yeah. it takes longer. So it's a longer onset, like 20 minutes, some 20, 25 minutes sometimes just to get to peak. And then when you're at peak, you're at peak for half hour and then it fades out afterwards. Got it. So less bioavailable orally. Right. But there's an ease of use and there's also the freedom of movement. Right. And then as you say, <clears throat> intramuscularly might be the best way if you've, if you can do it that way. If you can get to it. Um, but it doesn't outweigh the benefits of being, if you can't get to a good intramuscular provider, you know, it's better to just get a qualified tr clinician to sure. have a pharmacy send you oral ketamine at home. Almost, I would say yeah. like 80% 80, 80 of the patients we see that we do uh, ketamine therapy with are all telemedicine patients. So they mm. are at home in the comfort of their home with somebody else there to take care of them if they need a little help to the bathroom or something. And we teach them how to self-administer the medicine Going back to what you brought up earlier is that you can self-administer it. Mm -hmm. So that solves a huge access to care problem. And you can teach people how to do it at home over Zoom. And then they can do it on their own after by repeating what we taught them. Mm -hmm. Literally just doing the same setup, same comfy location setup, same music, same smell, yeah. same whatever, right? Same intentions. And they can do it over and over and over again to the point where you get six or 12 doses over the course of several months and then people can actually start to achieve with a relatively short amount of time in therapy and just six to 12 doses of medicine symptom remission hmm. which is pretty outstanding it's unreal um so let me ask you just about ideal duration so you mentioned an hour i've seen 40 minutes i've seen 90 minutes is there a goldilocks zone there i mean it just depends on how much yeah. medicine you get and the way you absorb it but, so yeah, but there's no optimal. Not really. Know, okay. I mean, I would say in general, you know, oral experiences take longer because there's a longer on and a longer off time. Intramuscular right. injection and IV experiences, you can literally it's on and then it's off. So it's much easier to do those experiences in an hour end to end, and just have a little bit of recovery time afterwards than it is to do an oral experience that way, which requires more like two and a half hours. Got it. So if, if someone who has treatment resistant depression comes to you and you engage in 
ketamine therapy, is there a frequency of dosage or does that completely depend on the case? Or so it generally depends on the case, but I think that the, the evidence for treatment-resistant depression has shown so far that it's about two doses per week for three to six weeks. Mm-hmm. tends to be the sweet spot. Hmm. So that works out to be six to 12 doses within three to six weeks. Okay. And then you stop for a little bit and you do the therapy in between. Of course, there's right. lots of therapy in between integration therapy. You do stop and then uh you, you, I think what we do is we evaluate people and see where they're at over the next couple of months without ketamine, doing the practices that we taught them that are reinforcing what they were experiencing on ketamine and how to sort of bring forth what they're learning from those experiences into their day-to-day lives, which is what we call integration. And then they take that and then we evaluate again in a few months after the medicine stopped and we determine if they need to do another course or not. Um, usually we see people do anywhere from one to three courses to get to where they want to go, but it just depends on the individual. Yeah. And are there many contraindicators? Not too many. I mean, for any psychedelic medicine in general, the contraindications are bipolar disorder, psychosis, delusional disorder, a family history of any of those things can be a contraindicator. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you know, with ketamine, I think ketamine is interesting also because it's the most versatile of all the psychedelics. It doesn't, it, because it doesn't directly impact the serotonin pathway, you can use it on, while taking an SSRI. You don't have to taper off of your hmm. Prozac or Zoloft or Paxil, which can be a really frustrating process to take ketamine. But huh. you do for MDMA and psilocybin. Right. Right. So that yeah. creates another barrier to access those medicines for people who already have <clears throat> depression. Um, lithium which is used for bipolar disorder and mood stabilizations actually is thought to in a lot of in, in some papers potential potentiate or extend the duration and the effects of ketamine. Mm-hmm. So that's also really interesting mm. because people who have bipolar two, which is not full swing bipolar, but sort of light hypomanic and you know, times of where they're super high energy, but not to the point of self-destruction and low energy, but not quite to the point of depression. Yeah. Um, those people who are taking lithium can actually have better, longer-lasting experiences with ketamine. Hmm. The only, and then, and then you know, some heart conditions, you know, ketamine can lower seizure, seizure threshold, so we don't typically administer it to people who have seizure disorders, and right. and it can, you know, change. It can affect heart patterns at higher doses, but we don't see that at the lower doses. But we typically don't administer it to people who have severe arrhythmias or cardiovascular syndrome or, right. you know, cirrhosis of the liver probably or right, things like pregnancy, that. maybe pregnancy. Actually it is so, used for because it's, okay. it's gentle and, yeah. and it's not, again, it does get passed through, but it's thought to be gentle enough that when pregnant women need to be, need to be put under for surgery, it's probably, it's a lesser of the evils as far as anesthetics go to yeah. the, the fetal brain, which is interesting. Hmm. So it is used and in children it's used for anesthesia. So right. it, it is a very, safe and useful molecule it's been very well studied which is also why it's so fascinating um but there's all that's also why because it's new to the mental health space there's not a lot of regulation or guidance around how to use it specifically for mental illness right and so what is the breadth of clinical research tell us now about the use of ketamine so currently ketamine is only fda approved for depression treatment resistant depression 
Okay. And that's only as S-ketamine by Janssen in conjunct the nasal spray yeah. in conjunction with like with with medication treatment with treatment. Oh, really? So that's the only thing that the FDA has approved at this juncture. Currently, yes. But that was really just to open the door for S-ketamine to come in. Right. People have been using ketamine off generic ketamine off label sure. for you know decades. And the FDA can't really say anything about off off label usage. Per se. I, I mean, no, because it's approved for anesthesia and it works right. really well for anesthesia and it works really well at low doses for these other issues. So people can use them for these other issues. I think where yeah. we really see its powerful nature in terms of treatment is even d- depression, yes, but also in PTSD and really yeah. helping just like all psychedelic medicines seem to help with is this reappraisal of self, right? And, and understanding that hey, this idea of myself as a victim of circumstance, that's just an idea that I was taught by the experiences I had where maybe I wasn't supported. That's not mm-hmm. my fault. That's actually separate from my identity. My identity is me, mm-hmm. not victim me. Victim mm-hmm. is a modifier to me that I learned to associate with me, right? If I'm not a victim, then I could actually be in control of my outcome. Right, and then it starts this positive cascade down that path of, of of thinking around how do I restore myself? How do I remind myself that I'm actually in control? Breathing, movement, touch, music, getting lots of good sleep, controlling and making sure I put good, good, healthy stuff into my body. Right, all of those things together, creating that milieu of safety, then helps us to retrain the brain by reactivating neuroplasticity. In a very, I mean, it's it's happening anyway, but in the way we want it to be active, to learn things that are actually serving us. Is it an audacious idea to start to consider the word cure in association with some of these therapies? I think we have to aspire high, right? We have yeah. to aim high. Our field has been so so Myers. challenged for yeah, yeah and, and for so long, where for decades we've only been able to treat indefinitely right? Where mental illness diagnosis was associated with a terminal illness. And I think what's so incredible about what's happening right now, when you look at the MDMA assisted therapy studies and the psilocybin studies and the ketamine studies, and and even studies that we're having with wearable technology like Apollo, where we're actually able to see people do get better long-term. There are people getting better long-term. There are in the MAP studies with MDMA, more people better at one year out than they were right after the treatment ended with no treatment in between. Wow. So how is that possible? It's a, it's really a paradigm shift in the way we look at mental health. And if you think about how it's possible that 67% of people at one year out could be better and only 53% at two months out and there's no treatment in between, the only real answer is that makes sense is, well, we're teaching people how to heal themselves again, right? We're yeah. awakening that intuitive connection with ourselves that allows or, or reminds us how to do that work. And then we remember how to do that work and we remember how to treat ourselves well, all of a sudden our bodies heal and get better. And so if we can do that, then we can actually start to reevaluate the entire way that we talk about mental illness, which could potentially have a cure. Mm. Wow. Right now it appears that cost is a barrier, but I assume that, you know, with scale, um, you know, cost can come down. Do you see uh, a more affordable 
kind of therapy on the horizon or is it really going to be mostly cubbyhold for the affluent for now? I mean, all new treatments go through this path. Yeah. You know, I think the ben- the nice thing is that ketamine therapy is very cheap. You know, ketamine, racemic ketamine is actually a really great option because it costs $200 for, thir- for, for a month's supply, yeah. right? Whereas MDMA therapy with two therapists for one treatment course would cost you $14,000 for three doses and 42 hours of psychotherapy. Ketamine might cost you at this point, if you're a single person, $3,500 to, to $7,000. So it's about half mm-hmm. the price. If you think about that cost in terms of the annual cost of paying for an SSRI uh, or the cost of one, two SSRIs or one hospital admission for somebody who attempts suicide, one hospital admission could be five grand a day, right? So you avoid one hospital admission, you avoid one suicide attempt, you avoid one of those things in one out of every 20 people or something like that. And you have way more than achieved your financial goals for the seven grand a person per course of medicine, right? But I think the real, but so that's where things are right now. And I think the cost thing is really a red herring because in any preventative care system, it would be a no brainer knowing that people with untreated mental illness are the single most expensive patients that we have to care for in the entire health system, Mm -hmm. the entire health system. These people are just like us and they not only often can't work and they can't be productive members of society, but they accidentally traumatize other people around them because their trauma is untreated. They self-medicate. They are high utilizers of care. They often wind up in the hospital for different reasons, physical and mental. They are by far, untreated mental illness is by far well and above the most expensive folks to treat in our entire society by ignoring those people and not giving them what they need because we perceive it to be too much of an upfront cost. We are hurting all of us. We are literally setting our entire American society back because those numbers of mental health issues are still going up tremendously. And yet there's no treatments being put forward. So I think the answer to all of this for now is group therapy. Mm-hmm. Group therapy allows us to charge rather than seven grand for a course of treatment. You can maybe charge a thousand dollars for an entire course of treatment. And then you yeah. can have six to 10 people working with somebody like me, which they normally couldn't access. And then we can all work together. Yeah. And then, the, and then we, each, everyone in the group reinforces everybody else. Well, that's the thing you're, you're fostering community and accountability and, uh, promoting shared story and, right. um, I mean, just feeling not alone with your yeah. struggle, right? Like if yeah. you see that you're in a group of nine other people and they're having the same problem that you're having in a slightly different way, that makes you feel so much better because yeah. you know you're not alone. Yeah, you know, it's the I whole mean, idea I, of the show, right? It's commune. Commune. Well, you know, I, I saw some data. I think out of the Cleveland Clinic that was treating uh, two different cohorts of people with uh, type two diabetes to treat one group as. Uh, in community as a group and one, one cohort one-on-one and the fasting uh, glucose levels of the, of the cohort that was being treated as a group were coming down at a rate like a four X, you know, wow. the, the people that were being tra- um, treated individually. So there is something, you know, baked into this notion of community. And I think, you know, the, this idea of, of group therapy is, is absolutely, um, Fantastic. Now, I mean, I'm sure that like with anything, there is the potential for abuse. 
with ketamine. Um, I'm not sure how common that is. I don't know if you have any commentary there uh, in terms. It's surprisingly common. It is. Yeah, but I think that a lot of it is just poor drug education and self-medication. Right. Right. It's, it's people being, if you knew that if you were, number one, if you had tried a whole bunch of other psych- antidepressant medication for your depression, it hadn't worked. And then some, you were at a party and somebody's like, hey, take snort a line of this white powder that makes you feel really nice. And then your depression's gone for two weeks after doing that. Yeah. Would you not go back and do that again? Of course you would. would. Yeah. Especially if you've had no relief from anything ever, then all of a sudden this does it. Yeah. You probably have, you stand a good chance to go back. Right. And similarly, there's no frame, there's no therapeutic frame around that. There's no, right. no one telling you and guiding you that says, Hey, when you experience what you're going to experience after you ingest this white powder or this medicine that you're actually going to be experiencing a state of being you can access on your own without the medicine. This is your opportunity to learn what that feels like so you can get there on your own without the medicine, Mm. right? If we're doctors and we prescribe the ketamine to people in the IV or the IM setting and make them dependent on the medicine by not explaining to them how it works and that they can do it on their own, they just need to learn the techniques, which we're writing a manual now to help explain that to everybody because just not enough of it exists. But if we don't take the responsibility on ourselves to actually explain that properly to people, just like the person at the party, we are misleading our our patients to think that the medicine is responsible. Mm-hmm. The medicine is not responsible at, in, at all. It's not like an antibiotic. It's, it's more like a, uh, it, it's, it's like a tool. It's like a wrench yeah. for, for fixing, taking a bolt, loosening a bolt. You know, there's still a lot that has to be done. Most of the work has to be done after you loosen the bolt. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dave, this is, uh, Really just fascinating and and just so exciting to be on the precipice of like something new that can really alleviate a tremendous amount of suffering. I mean, like we said at the beginning, we're talking about one in eight, every eight people globally that are suffering from some form of of mental disorder. And, And like I said, you know, really nobody is unscathed by what's happening right now. So, um, I know I'm not alone in expressing my gratitude for your work and just really just being on the bleeding edge of, of this work. And it takes a lot of courage and bravery because there's a lot that we just don't know. And, um, and so, you know, to be out front is not always uh, the safest place to be. Uh, and we know that safety is of utmost importance. <laughs> so uh, I, I really applaud uh, your bravery and your thoughtfulness and your rigor uh, around all this is such a just a delight to to talk with you. I learned so much when we're together. So thanks so much, man. Oh well, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. All right, to be continued. To be continued. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Dave Rabin. I urge you to go to onecommune.com slash rewire to sign up for Rewire Your Brain, Dr. Dave's new commune course on neuroplasticity. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. 
And if you're a regular listener, you know how much effort the team puts into this show's creation. And we do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 130 courses now featuring the world's top thought leaders and authors. And you can check it out for free for 14 days, no strings attached, at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Leda Maliga, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you.